Hey folks, and welcome to this week's episode of the podcast. Our guest today is James Donna, member of the band The Castaways. Uh, it's a real interesting story, and I never sort of get tired of hearing about this era in show business and this sort of level of success. Like, he had huge success, but not so big that... Uh, it's all sort of washed away or part of a, this giant story that gets retold through all these different voices. Uh, the story's small enough and uh, that that his first-person remembrance gives you a real clear picture of a very specific uh, experience and scene and time and place, and uh, uh, I think that's really interesting. So super nice guy here, great memory, and uh, pretty forthcoming about uh, the real story of the castaways. And that's about it. Uh, hope you're good. Hope your holidays are starting off well. And uh, I'll be um, back with more guests soon. Check WFMU.org slash Michael, of course, for the list of upcoming guests. And, of course, the free archives of all of our uh, past interviews. They're all sitting up there. WFMU.org slash Michael. Okay, here it is. Uh, me and uh, keyboardist, songwriter of the... Uh, Castaways, James L. All right, there are the Castaways, and the new book is called Liar Liar from Garage Band to Rock Stars The Story of Minnesota's Castaways in the 1960s. And the author, James Donna, joins us. You are the keyboard player and, and now an author, I guess. Anyways, welcome to the program. Well, thank you very much for having me. Really appreciate it. My pleasure. Now, just to start off with you, you know, you're a guy in your, I don't know, your late 70s, I guess, and you are, you've been playing, you know, music for about 60 years, just about, you know, professionally and, and on the, the on people's radar. So when you wake up every day, what part of like, hey, I was in the castaways, or I guess you're still in the castaways, but I'm a castaway. I had a number 12 hit. Is that a, does that touch your life every day? Well, it does to some extent. I mean, next year will be my 60th year of being on stage, which I don't know where the time went by, but it, uh, I do think about it. I, you know, we're still booking the band. Uh, we mainly play now in the summertime, uh, outdoor concerts and things. So still very involved with the castaways. It's a, you know, a, a different version of the original band, of course, but, uh, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's amazing that, you know, after all these years, there's still interest in the band and we're still, still rocking and rolling. It is amazing. And, you know, not every band gets to have a tr straight up number twelve hits. And as you know, there's there were a million bands, and you sort of talk about uh, in this book some of the other bands that were in the scene, and not er you know some of them never got out of the scene, and you guys did. So let me go back to the beginning. You you grew up in uh, Northeast Minneapolis. You took piano lessons partly from a nun who slapped your hand from playing too jazzy. What age were you when when that was happening? Oh, it was grade school, uh, probably you know the sixth or seventh grade, I would guess. So where did the jazzy thing come into your head? You know, I was practicing back in those days to records that, you know, you'd buy at the record store and you'd hear on the radio. And so I was, you know, trying to learn how to play rock and roll on the piano. And I guess that kind of uh, conflicted a little bit with uh, my classical music lessons. Mm. Yeah, it's a, it's very, I think it speaks well. It's good rock credibility to know that you were, you know, hit by a nun to because of rock and roll. Uh, so what were you listening to? Were you listening to radio? Were you out buying a lot of records? What, I know your dad was a part-time musician. What was the music scene in your house? 
Well, Dad would be playing his saxophone and practicing and uh, and the organ, and you know, I would listen to him play, and he would be playing a couple nights a week. Uh, he was a engineer at Honeywell. Uh, that was his main career, but he played part-time with his band, you know, in supper clubs and ballrooms. And so that was a huge influence on me. But I listened to the local stations, WDGY and uh, KDWB here in Minneapolis. And, uh, of course, I bought some records and played along with them, trying to learn how to play piano on the rock, you know, rock and roll on the piano. Hmm. You're sort of the perfect age to have rock and roll kind of hit you like lightning. You know, you're 10 years old or so when Elvis Presley came, and then as you got into your adolescence, things kind of really exploded. I think you say in the book that when you were 16, you knew that you wanted to be a musician. Why did you know that? Well, I, I would hear some local bands perform, you know, um, and uh, you'd hear them on the radio, um, some of the local groups with their hit records, and uh, I was just very enamored by the the music business. And, of course, my dad was a big influence. I saw him, you know, playing at supper clubs. We'd go out on New Year's Eve and, and watch his band perform with the whole family, and so it was a big influence. It, you know, I just really loved music. Uh, it was just a big part of my life back then, and it still is. So the Castaways, this is something I did not know, were an existing band, and they uh, they didn't have a keyboard player, and they added you on the organ. You think they just thought, hey, we need to kind of round out our sound a bit? There was a few bands back then in the early 60s that had keyboard players. Not a lot. Most of them were all guitar bands. But this group that I joined decided they wanted to add a fifth piece, a keyboard player. And so I auditioned with them, and they uh, uh, signed me up to you know, perform with the band. And as they say, the rest is history. Yeah, the rest is history. Okay, so you, you start playing, and you're a very, you know, you're a young guy. The first gig, I think you say in the book, was at a pizza place. So how much rehearsal did the castaways do? do to be in that sort of, you know, local gigging uh, around the, the area where you guys lived. How many songs were in your repertoire at that time? They handed me a um, handwritten list of songs I had to learn, which was a huge undertaking for, you know, a young guy. And I did learn most of them. And, and uh, the band rehearsed all the time. I mean, it was a very serious rock and roll band. I mean, you know, they say, you know, you're a garage band. Well, you know, we were that. We were also a basement band. We rehearsed all the time in my parents' basement in northeast Minneapolis. So that was probably the key to our, one of the keys to our success was we rehearsed a lot. Hmm. And if a new cool song came out on the top 40 or something, would one of you guys say, hey, why don't we try this? And then you just work it up? Yes, we would. Uh, we were uh, a cover band back then. We didn't have any original music, so we played, you know, music from the 50s and the early 60s. Whatever the kids wanted to dance to, we learned how to play, and we did it at our shows. Ah. One of the things in the book that I thought was interesting is that you sort of started this little side business, and throughout the book, you are sort of the manager, business manager, the kind of adult of the band. It seemed like you were kind of naturally the guy who was going to take care of business and uh, sort of keep things, keep your eye on everything, which is, it seems to really suit your personality. Uh, but one of your side businesses was rewiring Wurlitzer electric pianos. Can you explain that? Sure. The early Wurlitzer electric pianos were not suitable for plugging into an amplifier, a guitar amplifier. They they were set up for putting a headphones in, in that jack. So being my dad was an engineer and I was interested in electronics myself, we discovered a way of rewiring them. It wasn't very complicated. So the word spread around the Twin Cities that, hey, uh, 
You know, Jim Donna uh, can rewire your pianos. So all of a sudden, people are bringing their pianos over to my house, and I'd rewire them for, you know, a, a fee. And uh, I did that for a couple of years. So when they built the Wurlitzer, they did not think folks would need it to amplify it? Because I know some of them have a built-in speaker, but most don't, right? The early ones had a built-in speaker and a jack for a headphones. I mean, the later models were wired correctly for, you know, as they became very popular. The, the later models were wired properly so you could plug them into a guitar amp. Gotcha. Quite entrepreneurial of you. From when you joined the band to when you wrote Liar Liar, how long, how long did that take? I joined the band after I graduated from high school in 63. Uh, 64 was kind of a, uh, a building period for the band where we started, you know, rehearsing and uh, playing some of the local dance halls and so forth and kind of working our way up in the music scene. But by my, 1965, uh, we realized uh, early in 65, we had to have a record if we were going to, you know, make it bigger in the Twin Cities music scene because uh, a lot of the local bands had songs playing on the radio. They were drawing huge crowds in the ballrooms, and if we wanted to join that that circle of, we call them the big three bands, the top three bands in the Twin Cities, we needed to have a record. And so myself and our drummer, Dennis Craswell, we uh, wrote Liar Liar in my parents' living room, and uh, as they say, the rest is history. Uh, yeah. So had you guys not thought of doing originals before this time? No, no. We we uh, well, we we thought about it. We talked about it, but we didn't have any of our own songs. Uh, as I said, we were just a cover band. We played a lot of you know, Everly Brothers, uh, Jerry Lee Lewis, uh, Chuck Berry. You know, all those songs uh, the kids loved to dance to. And we didn't have any original music till, you know, mid '65. We started recording our own music. Gotcha. And if I'm um can remember correctly you basically kept a diary of every gig i guess especially because you were sort of the business manager so the book is filled with all sorts of details you remember you know we got paid eighty dollars or forty dollars or uh, you know three hundred you remember everything and it's all the details are are all in the book Do you, how busy would you say this is before liar liar how busy were you guys am i right about i don't know 10 to 15 gigs a month I would say that about about what we were playing. Yeah, we were very busy. Uh, it was our full time jobs. You know, uh, basically, a bunch of high school kids or kids that just graduated from high school. This was our gig. Uh, you know, that's what we did for a living. Uh, so we were serious about it, and uh, we were playing all the time. Uh, actually, after Liar Liar became a national hit record, at least, well, first, let me back up here. When it first started, you know, going to number one in the Twin Cities, I mean, the phone was ringing off the hook when, you know, we were just booked all the time, you know, around Minnesota and surrounding states. So it just kind of snowballed from there. Hmm. Well, one of the things I really enjoyed about the book was this description of the circuit where you guys played. You know, some of these were old places where big bands had played, and some of them were kind of brand new teen clubs made just for these kind of teen baby boomers. That whole scene was exploding, and all the characters that run these clubs. And, you know, it was just like a, a thing that doesn't exist anymore. And it, it sort of sounds like a wonderful time to be in a band. Is that right? <laughs> I call it the golden age of rock and roll. I don't think we'll ever see anything like this again. Uh, some of my friends who contributed to the book and wrote stories, they said, you know, back then, um, kids could go to a ballroom and uh, stand right up by the stage, you know, and there wasn't no security. Well, there was some security, but I mean, it was like you could 
talk to a band member and, you know, get an autograph and you didn't have to pay $300 for a backstage meet and greet pass. <laughs> so, I mean, it was, the kids had a great time and, you know, we always, you know, stayed around and signed autographs and talked to our fans. So it was a completely different scenario than we have, you know, today with concerts where, you know, tickets can cost an astronomical amount of money. But back then, uh, you know, you could go to a dance for a couple bucks maybe and um, and see your favorite local band. Yeah. So April 2nd, 1965, you guys record Liar Liar at uh, at this local studio, the same studio where Surfing Bird, uh, I believe, was recorded. And how how long does the, did it take to record that song? We did it in less than two hours. We booked the studio for three hours, as I recall, but we... Uh, we were, you know, we didn't have a lot of money, and um, we wanted to save studio time, so we uh, we had it rehearsed pretty well before I went in the studio. So it was less than two hours we had it on tape. That's amazing. And uh, we were earlier talking about the Wurlitzer Electric Piano, which is what you dragged around from gig to gig mostly, but on this record, it's a Hammond organ. And I found that really interesting because the rock and roll organs were Farfises or Vox organs, things like that, but this is a, the giant Hammond organ. Full-size Hammond B3 organ with a big Leslie speaker. Nothing like it. Never has been anything to replace it. Even the digital keyboards of today, they can't match that sound of, a, of an analog instrument like a Hammond. But yeah, that's what I recorded uh, my part on Liar Liar on the Hammond organ. And uh, when we did some big concerts, uh, oftentimes they'd have a Hammond on stage so I didn't have to play my Wurlitzer. And uh, I always, always enjoyed those gigs where I didn't, you know, I got to upgrade, so to speak, from the Wurlitzer. Yeah. When you guys recorded this, is it a three-track machine, a four-track? Are there overdubs? What? Or how much of it is live when we listen to that record? You're listening to three tracks, um, just three tracks, not like today's, uh, you know, I just recorded in a friend's studio just for fun to help him out with some keyboard parts. And he had like, a, you know, a digital setup where you record on a hard drive and there's endless ways of overdubbing and, you know, adding more tracks and this and that. Back then, it was three tracks, two for the vocals, one for the instruments. So basically, you put all your instruments on one track and the vocals went on the other two tracks. Uh, so when we hear Liar Liar, all the instruments were recorded 100% live. That's right. No overdubbing. Just roll the tape as we're playing. That's fantastic. What a great record. So uh, eventually it gets to number 12 in the United States of America. And this isn't, I always point this out when I'm talking to somebody in this era, because you really get, for, for at least for me, you're going to get extra special respect because when you are competing with the Beatles in the charts, it was just harder to get on the charts for American bands. So to have a hit in literally the middle of Beatlemania is, uh, you know, an incredible accomplishment. Well, thank you very much. There was a lot of competition. I mean, there still is today, probably even more so. But, uh, you know, it's one of those million, once in a million events that occurs and uh, we made the charts and... Uh, and I don't know what else to say. It was just uh, an amazing thing that happened. Yeah, so just to catch me up on the timeline, from the day you auditioned for the band till the day the Liar Liar hits number 12, how long a period is that? I would say uh, summer of 63 till probably April of May of 65. Wow, that's amazing. That's a, and you guys worked. Uh, you worked to get there. Uh, you had a plan. You had a vision. I and the book kind of lays all this out. So interesting. The bass player of the band. I don't know how to 
to put it exactly, but he becomes uh, a problem. He be, his behavior becomes a problem. He ends up punching you. He ends up having a gun. So the band kicks him out. And at one point, he ends up starting his own version of the band, trying to get gigs and stuff under the name The Castaways, becomes a problem. And I definitely get the the feeling that as I read the book, that for you, reliving those kind of rougher patches uh, was sort of hard for you to kind of find the right voice, to ex- just like it is for me right now, to, to explain those parts of the band's history. Am I right? I think that's accurate. I mean, you know, when you're 20 years old and something like this happens, you don't have a lot of life experience to how to deal with it, and none of us did. I mean, we had a rule in our band, no violence against another band member, and we were a partnership. We were set up as a partnership, and unfortunately, um, you know, our bass player, he lost it one day, and he punched me out, and uh, we kicked him out of the band, and, you know, a month or two later, we're on tour, and he's out of the band, and it was a very sad thing. You know, there was some legal actions on both of our parts. I mean, a lot. this happens to a lot of bands, unfortunately, and it still does today. But the good news is, you know, you flash back decades later, and we're friends again, and it's all in the past. And so, you know, he's still playing. And he, in fact, he's even sat in with my current band a couple times. So, you know, it's it's all in the past. Story has a happy ending. Yeah, it's good. you're right. It does happen to a lots of band, but it's interesting that he plays on the record, but then quit the band sort of in that period before the record became a hit. So one of the guitar players in the band switched to bass, and it really wasn't a, too big of a, a hiccup in the road for you guys. One of the things I thought was super interesting is you guys, uh, you're on Casey Kasem's TV show and Dick Clark's TV show, uh, a whole bunch of TV. How many times were you on a TV show where you had to lip sync Liar, liar. Dozens and dozens of times in California, we're on TV shows, and it was, it was very weird the first time we did it. I mean, we'd never lip synced, you know, before. We were used to playing live, but we, we learned how to do it, you know, and uh, that's that's how it was done back then. You know, they'd play liar, liar over their studio monitors at full blast, and we would lip sync and pretend to play instruments. I mean, our drummer did play his drums live, but that was it. The rest was all just, you know, lip-synced and uh, so forth. But, you know, they had their go-go girls and dancers and the studio audience and all that. So, you know, it was a lot of fun after we got into it. Yeah. So 1965, how old was the drummer in the band? I want to guess maybe 17. Yeah. And you guys are off in California and they're, like you said, go-go girls and stuff. How much of being, because the book is called, you know, From Garage Band to Rock Stars, how taxing was this like you said you weren't you'd never lip synced right you'd never done any of the there's no training for having a number 12 national hit how 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 did everybody deal with it just psychologically i guess it was our dream uh, you know our, our dream was first to become you know a very popular minnesota band and it, it just exploded after that with liar liar going national and uh, we had nobody to really mentor us or teach us what to do. We had to kind of figure a lot of, a lot of this out by ourselves. But we did uh, end up hiring a couple of very smart managers uh, after we uh, recorded Liar Liar, and they uh, they were super helpful as far as navigating, uh, you know, signing us up with booking agencies and getting some of these uh, TV shows and that. So that was a uh, management. Uh, that we hired uh, Dick Shapiro and Ira Heilicher. Uh Ira Heilicher was the son of Amos Heilicher, who was the president of Soma Records. So that was uh, that was huge for the band to have them on board. But in terms of like, you know, the ability to drink 
as much beer as you wanted or stay up late or meet girls or, you know, just do go off the rails. Did you guys keep it together? I think we did for the most part. I mean, there was a couple of times, that, and I never put this in my book because I don't want my grandchildren to read about this someday, but <laughs> I, I got drunk one night and drove a road grader into a farm field in Iowa after a concert. And, you know, I didn't put that in the book, but I'll just... <laughs> you know, there was a few incidents like that that I'm not particularly proud of. But most of the time, we were so busy, you know, playing and, and recording and, and doing shows and all that that we didn't get into a lot of trouble. Yeah. Well, who hasn't driven the the road grader, uh, you know, everywhere? That's happened to everybody. Uh, let me remind folks, James Donna is our guest, and his new book is called Liar, Liar, From Garage Band to Rock Stars, the story of Minnesota's The Castaways in the 1960s. And you can find it over at thecastawaysrock.com and all sorts of information about the band, and I guess come this summer where, where they'll be playing. Uh, so one of the, as I said before, I really enjoyed the parts about your gigs, and you, like I said, kept all the details there was a place called the safari club and when the owner didn't like what was going on he had a, a unique way i'd never heard of this of dealing with uh getting folks out of there tell us about it that was a real classic the owner had a really big mean german shepherd and he kept it in the in in the back room in the office and if uh, and if a fight broke out which often happened at, at the dance halls back then you know the kids would get into a fight he turned the dog loose, and I'm telling you, that happened after the first song we played, and the whole place cleared out in about two minutes. <laughs> that is classic, man. That is such a, that is such an awesome story. Uh, I mean, I wish I had a camera. You know, there was no iPhones back then, and I didn't take a camera with me. I mean, what a picture that would have made to put in the book. Oh, yeah. Just kids running in all directions. Yeah. Over the years, you guys got ripped off a few times. And again, I thought this was super interesting. Is it just because nightclub owners were shady characters sometimes? It only happened a couple of times, and it was in California. Um, I don't really remember the details, you know, if it was like... There's a couple of ballrooms in the in California that didn't pay us after a show, and I don't know, you know, it was like the check is in the mail kind of thing, and it never came. Hmm. But our agency reimbursed us for a couple of those gigs, so, you know, it wasn't a big deal. Uh, so working up a show, it seems like you guys were not just a, a rock band, you were entertainers. You were out there to make sure everybody had a, sort of a great time doing, you know, whatever you guys could do to, to bring entertainment in, into the show. So how did you work that stuff up? What were you guys doing to sort of to complete the whole show? I think it was just something that we developed over a period of time. You know, we probably saw some other bands do some things. And uh, I, I really can't answer that question very well. I, 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 you know, maybe it just came naturally to some of the band members. I mean, I, I myself didn't do much of that except, you know, um, I saw my hero, Jerry Lee Lewis, kick the piano stool out and the crowd going wild. So I would do the Jerry Lee Lewis move a couple times, you know, when we played <laughs> Great Balls of Fire. I'd kick the piano stool out and, you know, the kids would scream and, you know, stick like that. Yeah, well, that's important, I think. Uh, you mentioned Jerry Lee. He just passed away. There's a story in the book about how he came through your, you know, close to hometown and through a DJ you knew, you kind of got introduced to him and he sat you down and immediately kind of gave you a piano lesson. Amazing. That is an amazing story that I still can't believe happened. Uh, I'm like 16, 17 years old, and I go out to Danceland Ballroom, and uh, Jerry Lee Lewis, my hero, um, is playing a big sold-out show at the ballroom, and uh, I talk to him a little bit before the show, 
And uh, there was a DJ by the name of Bill Deal from WDGY. He was probably uh, the most popular DJ in the Twin Cities at the time. And we were both standing by the stage, and I started talking to Bill about, you know, how I love Jerry Lee Lewis, and he was my idol. He says, hey, I'll tell you what. He said, after the concert, I'll take you up on stage and introduce you to Bill, uh, to uh, Jerry Lee. And so he did, and uh, I got up the nerve to ask uh, Jerry Lee if he would please show me how to play uh, Great Balls of Fire and Whole Lot of Shaking. And, and he says, sure, sit down, son, and I'll show you. And he did. <laughs> Yeah, unforgettable. Amazing. Uh, great story in the book about Baby Huey and the Babysitter. So we're sort of a an R&B show band, is I guess what I would call them. And tell us about the story of them opening for you. We were in Chicago, I think it was either New Year's Eve or the day before New Year's Eve in 65. And Baby Huey was a huge local attraction in Chicago. I mean, he drew massive crowds to the, the clubs. And we did not know that they were known for humiliating national bands. I mean, they were a, a polished horn band. And, uh, you know, they were the opening act, so to speak. And uh, the last song of their set, the horn section gets up on the bar, and they start doing steps, you know, playing their saxophones, uh, marching down the bar. And Baby Huey was a huge guy. He turns around, he drops his pants, and he's got polka dot underwear on, and he moons the crowd. So how do you follow that? You don't. <laughs> I wanted to crawl under a bar stool and die, but we had to go on stage, you know. And you know, we put on a good show, and I think people really liked the band. But it's you know, it's hard to follow an act like that. I mean, it, it was crazy, absolutely. I never seen anything like it. Probably never will. All in a day's work, I guess. Uh, so let's talk about Soma Records. How much of the success? of Liar Liar is due to their hard work. I mean, obviously, great song, great recording, a little bit of just, I guess, what kids wanted to hear right at that moment, like great timing. But how, mov- how much of it is hard work on their promotion? And then the flip side of that is, you know, what did you miss out by not being on a major label? I think Soma Records, Amos Heilicher, by the way, Amos is Soma spelled backwards. He was the godfather of the Twin Cities recording industry back then, and they were huge. They had, you know, nationwide distribution, they had marketing, they had all of those things. They did a phenomenal job promoting local bands, including the Castaways. When we got to California, we probably could have signed with a major label, but we really didn't think about that too much. I mean, we thought we had enough songwriter talent in our band. Maybe we could have signed with a big label, you know, with all our marketing and promotion and uh, really, you know, taking the band to a whole other level. But, you know, it didn't happen. We stayed with Soma Records. And, you know, looking back, I'm I'm fine with with the way things happened. Gotcha. Uh, Am I right that in your time with the band, the Castaways only recorded nine songs? Is that right? That's correct. Yeah, and no LP ever of the Castaways until until compilations came out. It was all just a, a bunch of singles. But that's, I guess, kind of typical of, of how bands operated at, at that point. So, like you said, uh, the bass player ended up suing you guys. So, business-wise, because everybody's record contracts in the 60s were different, did you guys, did you personally ever give away part of your publishing? And did you guys own your tracks? Or does Soma own them? Or who owns them now? Well, you know, when you sign a recording contract, you sell your your master and your master rights to the recording company. 
that has changed hands several times. Uh, Unidisc in California now owns the masters, and they started really licensing the song, and, and they, uh, there have been some, you know, before that there was some compilations. The drummer and I own the publishing rights, uh, the copyright to our song, so it's, it's all worked out pretty good. Yeah. So without getting too deep into your personal business, when you write a song that's number 12 and it's played on oldies radio, you know, everywhere for almost 60 years, like you say, and it's in movies and TV shows. And I mean, is there like a, enough income to, I don't know, buy a new refrigerator every year or a new car or an island in the South Pacific? Like what level is that sort of passive income at? It's certainly not the island and it, uh, you know, maybe a well-equipped car or something, but uh, it, you know, it's a it's a steady income, but not a lot of money. I mean, if you're somebody like Brian Wilson, that's written all these songs that are constantly on the radio, obviously the check is going to be huge. Ours is much much smaller than that, but it's just nice to get a little check once in a while from the publishing company and the record company and. Uh, uh, the song's been licensed to some movies through four times, I believe it's been. So there's some licensing deals, which is a little payday for the band. And, uh, you know, every time it's played on radio or Internet, the songwriters get, you know, a small yeah. percentage of that. So it's all good. I think that's awesome. When Sometimes a, a label will say that a band has not recouped, but if they want to license your track for a car commercial or something, do you guys get part of that master fee? Yes. Yes. Okay, that's great. You mentioned Brian Wilson, and I know you guys opened for the Beach Boys, uh, I think, before the record, and then for part of a tour after the record, and you had some interaction. Just tell me a little bit about that experience of, of being friendly with them and just watching their show and traveling with them. Amazing experience. When we went to California, we were the opening act for the Beach Boys for some of their shows, and uh, they're very, very nice guys, uh, especially like El Jardine at the airport when we were flying up to uh, Vancouver for a big concert. He bought me a magazine. He saw me in the in the gift shop looking at magazines. He says, hey, let me get this for you. I mean, I mean, how nice is that? And uh, when they came to the Twin Cities, we opened a couple of two or three big shows for them uh, here locally and, you know, got to visit them with them again and be backstage and so forth. And so, yeah, I'd say they're my, they're my favorite all-time band. What an honor to tour with a group like the Beach Boys. And, in fact, uh, I, I'm friends with Al Jardine and, and his digital uh, media manager, Spud. Uh, I've got to know them quite well, and uh, Al contributed to the book, and uh, it, it's it's all good. You ended up leaving the band at a certain point. I think there was a lot of different things in play why you made that decision when you made it. But just briefly, why why leave uh, something that was still going pretty well? You know, I've racked my brains over the years, and I talk about this in the book. Um, was there something going on that I was deep down... There was a lot of things. You know, I wanted to go back to school and finish my education at the university, which I did do. Being on the road that much and all the responsibilities of being the leader and business manager, that was starting to wear on me. I mean, we were on the road all the time. Winter roads in Minnesota, you know, driving this old Cadillac hearse on winter roads until we, you know, eventually could afford a new van. Uh, that was kind of wearing on me. And I think the schooling part was probably one of the biggest reasons going back to finish my education at the university, because you can't be in college and touring a rock and roll band at the same time. I tried it. 
you know, I was getting incompletes and things turning to Fs, and it was very distressing. Also, there was, you know, there was a band drama that every band has. And, you know, it was a lot of those things. And in my book, I said, well, you know, maybe there was something else going on. Maybe it was pride that, you know, the band was starting to, you know, peak, and I didn't see that we were going to have another monster hit record. You know, would I go out on top? I mean, there was a lot of things playing out in my mind. Yeah, uh, going on on top, there's certainly worse worse things than that. After that, you worked, you had your own booking agency, you worked corporate jobs, and you played in bands, really, you know, throughout, including now. Folks can still book the castaways, and you guys play fairly regularly. And like I said before, thecastawaysrock.com is the place for information. Am I right that uh, getting your tune Liar Liar in the film Good Morning Vietnam sort of jump-started some interest in the band? That was amazing development. It was, I think, 1986. The phone rings in my office. I pick it up, and it's some Hollywood movie producer I never heard of, and he starts telling me about, you know, we're shooting this film, and we want to license Liar Liar. And I thought, well, you know, tell, tell me more. He says, well, it's starring Robin Williams. It's about the Vietnam War. And I said, well, this is absolutely perfect, you know. So I got him in touch with the record company and the publishing company, which by that time had moved to New York City. And, you know, I hadn't heard anything from 66 to, you know, 20 years probably it had gone by. And, you know, there was no royalties. There was no nothing. Things were kind of quiet. I was still playing, you know, with the castaways, my version of the band. And, yeah, that was an explosion in interest in the band. It really kick-started our career and interest in the song. Yeah. Uh, how did you wind up with the uh, right to the Castaway's name? I had been using it since the early 70s. I mean, I, when I left the band in 66, I really missed being on stage and performing. You know, I didn't miss the touring and the drama and all that stuff we talked about, but I did miss just playing in a band and playing music. So I started playing in the early 70s, and I I, uh, served, I trademarked the name. Yeah, great. So let's talk about Liar Liar just one more time, because I want to play it to, to wind things up. It's just a total wonderful record, you know what I mean? It's, it's unique, but it's so of its time, but it's so classic. As you revisit it, has your thoughts on it changed? You know, how do you feel when you hear it? I'm still overwhelmed when I hear it on the radio or, uh, you know, uh, when it's replayed, a movie gets replayed. And I mean, I, I go to YouTube and there's all these sites on the castaways and Liar Liar. And, you know, um, there's one site on YouTube where it's been viewed 2.6 million times. I mean, that just blows my mind. I mean, who would have thought, you know, what is it, 57 years later? that this song would still be performed. I mean, it just, it, it's, it, I don't even know how to describe it. It's just amazing. Yeah, it really is a well, well-loved uh, tune. And something I, I always uh, thought was interesting about this, the mono mix and the stereo mix are, are startlingly different. Was there a lot of thought into making them sound different? Well, whoever had the record company had the master tapes, and they did remix it, so I'm not sure how that all technology works, but they did remix the song into stereo. I'm not sure the, what the process is, but they had the three tracks to work with from the master tapes, so they did some magic there. Oh, so in your two-hour session originally, you did not mix the, the tune down? Oh, yeah. We mixed it down to a mono tape. 
Oh, that's interesting. So the stereo is after the fact. All right. Uh, let's hear it now. Once again, the book, which I recommend, is called Liar, Liar from Garage Band to Rock Stars, the story of Minnesota's castaways in the 1960s. James, Donna, thanks for spending some time with us this morning. been great. Well, thank you very much. And could I just mention it's also available on Amazon if anybody's interested. Sure, of course. Thank you. My pleasure. Thank you.